All right. Let's take just a minute and pray, and we'll get going. God, we just come before you tonight humbly. Um, We ask that you would quiet our minds and quiet our hearts. I pray that we would be able to leave behind um, just the stress of school or work or um, problems or whatever it is going on in our life that would take our attention from you. And I pray that we would be able to focus, that you enable us to do that, um, and that we would be able to hear what you have to say to us, God, and to respond to your truth. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so just like a super quick reminder... um, I know that I, even myself, we come in here and we, uh, part of what makes the table the table that I absolutely love is we take these sections of scripture, right, and we go like super, super deep. So tonight, the section that we're looking at is like 10 or 11 verses, okay? It is not a big section of scripture, but we look at everything that we possibly can. Um, We look at the meaning of words and we look at historical context. Um, And we really dive in, and I love that. Um, One thing that can be a little bit, I guess, tricky about that, or even just a good reminder for myself, is to remember that this section of Scripture is in a proper context of a letter, right? So, So 2 Thessalonians is only three chapters long. That is not a long letter. And, and by the way, we added the chapters and the verses, right? Paul didn't break it up like that. He just wrote this letter. Um, and so something I just want to encourage you guys to do is, especially if you're a note taker, like I see a ton of you guys taking notes and that's awesome. Um, if you get time, go ahead and like review before you get here, like what we were talking about last week um, and try to be paying attention to, okay, so how does this idea connect to what we're talking about tonight? Um, and obviously we'll do some of that as we're up here and as we're teaching. Um, but just a reminder on that, I think we're spending like six weeks or something on these three chapters. Um, and this is a shorter letter. You know, there are semesters where we are like trekking through books, right? Um, so just a good reminder to remember where we're at in context that we're just slicing out this chunk and we're going to dive into it. Um, but it's meant to be, you know, it, it was originally meant to be read in its entirety as this book. Um, So, okay, we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians 13, and we are going to start there. Uh, We'll start with just 13 and 14. Um, So Paul says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, two, two little verses right there, but he is packing like this powerful punch, and there are major implications just in those couple of verses. Um, and so really, like as we, as we kind of talk through this section tonight, the big theme that I see emerging from Paul as he is teaching the Thessalonians is um, this is how we live life in light of the gospel and some things that he is calling them to. And so the first one is this. He's, he says, but we, and when he's talking about we, he's talking about himself and he's talking about the apostles. Um, and this letter is actually from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so he's saying we, the apostles, ought always to give thanks. And he's going to start talking about what they're, what they're thankful for. But I want to pause for a minute on that word ought. We ought always. Like that's some interesting language right there, obligation. Um, I believe it is a joyful obligation. 
Um, but what he's telling them is we are, because of what God has done, we are under obligation to live out gratitude and to give praise to God. And I even think of like with my own kids, right? Like, I'll be honest, sometimes feeding them is like an obligation, okay? If I don't do it, like the state's going to come take them or they're going to die. I don't want any of those things, right? So I'm going to feed my kids. And most of the time, it is super joyful. Like most of the time, I love being able to just care for them in that way. But sometimes it's kind of taxing. Sometimes I'm tired. Um, and so that is when, on the days when maybe I don't feel like doing something, um, I, I'm obligated. And so it can still be this thing that is full of joy and that, that there is joyful obligation, but it's also like, it's a command. We ought always. There is this obligation. Um, and so he tells them why. We ought always um, to give thanks to God for you um, because God chose you as the first fruits. And so here he is, he is talking about this idea of um, the conversion of the Thessalonians. God chose them. God chose you to be saved. So we ought to give thanks for your salvation. We ought to give thanks for your conversion. That is this incredible thing. And he uses the word first fruits. So what he's also saying there is not only are we going to be thankful for your salvation, but the first fruits is a word that tells us what? There's going to be more. This is, there's going to be a coming harvest. This is the advancement of the kingdom is what is happening here. Um, so he's saying, yes, we ought in light of the gospel, because God chose you, we ought to give thanks for your salvation. Um, another phrase that we kind of use, you might hear us use the word justification or justified. That's what he's talking about here, that um, when, they, when they received Jesus, they, they were saved. They've become justified. Um, then he goes on and he says, um, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. Um, and so he uses this word sanctification which you've probably heard us use that before. But if you don't know what that means, it is this idea of holiness. It is this idea of um, the Holy Spirit empowering us as we live out our life to pursue holiness. This process of being sanctified means that everything in my life is being submitted to God and that he is actively working in me to transform me into the image of Christ, the working out of my salvation. So Paul's saying we ought always to be thankful for what God is doing right now. This process of making you holy, we ought to be thankful for that. And then he keeps going um, and he says, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and Drew's going to touch on that a little bit more. But, but he's he is taking the gospel in basically the widest possible lens that he, that he can when, we, when he says, like, we ought to have gratitude for these things and this is the way that you need to think. He's saying you need to, you need to have this full picture of the gospel um, because God chose you, because of what God did and you were saved, because God is transforming you into the image of his son. And then this reference to eternity because God's enough and you are going to get to be with Jesus forever. Um, and so he's saying because of those things, um, we're going to give thanks. And I also think like there is just something cool. Even the whole, the whole tone of Paul's letters um, to the Thessalonians is, is a lot of just his love for them and the way that he cares about them. Um, and so I think that there is also just this, like, he's thankful for all of this. He's thankful for the big picture of the gospel, and he's thankful for the Thessalonians, um, and I don't know if you guys have had the opportunity or not um, yet, I would, I would pray and hope, um, but to be part of somebody's conversion, 
like where God allows you to experience um, that moment of like sharing the gospel and that person responding and, and accepting Jesus. Um, like that phrase, like my spiritual children, that is such a real thing. Like when you are able to experience that, um, I, I'm so grateful for that in my own life. And there is this absolute um, trust in God with that person and also also this very real, um, like I believe, holy God-given desire to disciple them well and to lead them well. And you also just have this like crazy supernatural love for them, or at least I, I have experienced that. And it seems that Paul is feeling the same way because this letter is full of um, just his love and his care and his concern for them. Um, and so I even just want to remind us, like if you have not had a chance to go read through Acts, Acts 17 is where you'll find like in Paul's missionary journey of where he is um, coming to Thessalonica. And, and what happens is in 16, right before, um, he's in Philippi. And if you've, if you've read through Acts or if you have any, you know, experience with kind of the New Testament and the missionary journey, it's this crazy story, you guys, of, of he, is, he has been preaching to the Philippians and he gets thrown into jail, he and Silas. Um, and so they're in this disgusting prison. And, and rather than just being, you know, torn up about, we're in prison again. They are, they're not doing that. Instead of what they're doing, again, this idea of gratitude, they're like worshiping God and they're, they're praising that they're counted worthy of suffering for the gospel. And so they are singing and they are praising. And craziest thing, this massive earthquake comes um, and, and it actually physically shakes open the jail cells so that the doors, they like pop open. Not just Paul and Silas, but like every single bad dude that was in there, the doors are come flying open, right? Um, and so long story short, basically the, the Philippian jailer gets saved. It's this incredible, you know, encounter and his whole house is like baptized, which is amazing. But then in the process of all of this, it comes to light that, oh, like Paul is actually a Roman citizen and that's a big deal. So we kind of can't treat him this way. We need to not treat him this way. And so they come to him and they ask him, beg him basically like, you need to leave. Um, and so he does. And he, the place that he goes after that encounter is straight to Thessalonica. Um, and I think we've touched on, on the history some of, of you know, what, what happened there when he initially comes and is preaching the gospel. Um, but, but Acts tells us that for at least, and maybe it was longer, but for at least three weeks, three Sabbath days, Paul shows up to the temple there and he's preaching to the Jews. Um, and as some start to convert, the Jews become jealous. And so they actually, in Thessalonica, they start this crazy mob and they drag one of the first church leaders of the Thessalonians, Jason, they drag him out of his house. They're creating this huge riot. All this stuff is going on. Like there is a lot of hostility. The, the persecution is happening. It's there. Um, and in the middle of the night, that same night, like they have to send Paul away. Um, and so that's his experience with the Thessalonians is like, this is what happened in the beginning. He didn't get a lot of time there. And now he's sending these letters back. And when we studied First Thessalonians last, last semester, you saw that he just keeps saying over and over, like how grateful he is for how well they're doing in spite of the persecution and in spite of everything that's happening and how much he trusts God with this process of um, just continuing to make them holy and the continued sanctification. So that's kind of what's going on here when he's saying these things and he's giving them um, this, this big picture of like, this is the gospel and we ought to always be, be thankful. And he's talking about the apostles 
So it's kind of implied, I think, like if Paul ought to always be thankful for everything that God is doing in Thessalonica, like how much more the Thessalonians need to be thankful for what God is doing in themselves, right? And to live out this, this, joyful, this joyful obedience. Um, okay, we're going to keep going um, over to verse 15. He says, so then, brothers, okay, so that phrase, so then, basically in light of everything that I just told you, so then, stand firm and hold to the tradition that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Um, and so he is charging them with faithfulness um, to hold true and to hold firm um, to, to the doctrine that he's imparted to them. And if you were with us last week, um, you know that we kind of studied that we studied the man of lawlessness. Um, and if you look probably just on the very the previous page, Second um, Thessalonians chapter two, um, just those first couple of verses is a quick recap of what's going on. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so so he's kind of coming right on. I don't, he's, he's just saying like he just got done comforting them with that's not true. And now he's going to charge them with, but you need to be faithful to what is true. And so there is this degree of in order to be faithful to what's true, you have to actually know the truth. Um, and this is in a day and a time like they don't have the New Testament. The New Testament's being written. Um, and it wasn't just so easy as like, hey, you know, I got this crazy email from you. I think maybe you've been hacked. I'm just going to FaceTime you real quick and see like if you actually sent that. None of that existed. They can't send them a text and be like, hey, bro, did you say this? That's not happening. And so we see over and over in the New Testament um, this battle of um, like bad doctrine starting to seep into the church and the apostles, you know, combating that. Um, if you ever want to kind of read up on some of that, Second Peter is an awesome book just on how to live out a holy life and be true to, um, true to doctrine and true to the gospel and all of those things. But we see these ideas over and over that um, there is this difficulty of, um, no, like we need to stand firm in the truth. Um, and part of how you do that is to know what the truth actually is. And so he's charging them with that. Um, and he's saying, again, like, because of everything that I just got done saying, like, because of the fullness of the gospel, because of what God has done for you, you have a responsibility to be grateful and also to be faithful with the truth that he's entrusted to you. Um, okay, let's keep going. He's going to start actually praying for the Thessalonians, which I just, I absolutely love that. I love coming across um, prayers of the apostles in, in scripture. Okay. Um, in verse 16, he says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And so in other words, the big idea to take away from that being like, I am praying that you would be fully satisfied in God and that that satisfaction and that that comfort that only he can provide would enable you to live out a life worthy of the calling of the gospel, would enable you to be faithful to every good word and faithful to every good work. Um, and may you be satisfied, like the satisfaction of God, the comfort of God, 
Um, that's what's going to enable them to do that. And this is just like a side note, just for free, but I just loved it. So I'm going to just share it with you guys. As I was um, reading some of the commentaries and getting ready for tonight, one of them commented that like you see, um, you see the apostles' theology when they pray. Like you see what Paul believes about Jesus whenever you see these prayers and you see what they believe about the gospel. Um, and I think one of the guys challenged us recently just to kind of go through the New Testament and um, look at those prayers and, and, and study those prayers. Um, and so I just I think that is such a cool reminder of like they, they so believe this. Everything is built around it and this is the way that they pray. Um, and the way that they pray is what they really believe. So just kind of a cool thing. Um, okay. On to chapter 3. He says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Um, so he, he gets done praying for them, and he turns around and he says, um, I'm now going to charge you to do this. So basically, in light of the gospel, in light of what God's done for you, you Thessalonians, have this responsibility to pray for the advancement of the gospel, to pray that just as it came to you, that it would speed ahead to others. And so I'm going to charge you with that. And we even see him, it's so cool to watch Paul like modeling for the Thessalonians, right? I mean, he tells them, um, you know, this is how we ought to be grateful. I ought to be grateful, you know, for the gospel and for all that God is doing. And so do the Thessalonians. And then this is how um, I'm going to pray. Like, I'm going to pray for you guys. And he's going to turn around and charge them with, and this is what you need to pray. This is how you need to pray. Um, so he's, he is leading them and he is teaching them. And he goes on to say, um, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Um, and so he really, like this section starts with the bigness of gospel. And then we see Paul kind of like coming back around full circle to that and saying like, Thessalonians, I know that you're going to be obedient. I know, Thessalonians, that you are going to be faithful. And how do I know it? Not because you're just so awesome, but because I have a trust in the God of the gospel. Um, and if you, if you even just flip back um, to 1 Thessalonians, he kind of has some of the same idea um, as, as he is praying for them there in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 23. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Um, and so, again, it is just this like this is the charge that we've been given and we can have confidence because we trust God in all things and because nobody's doing this in the power in and of themselves, but it is because God is faithful. Men are not faithful, but God is. It is because of what God has done. Um, and I love the way that he prays. He prays actually um, basically for, for like for all of um, the Thessalonians. That, that word in verse 5 it says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Um, that word hearts is, is kind of, I think, the best, the best that we can translate. But basically what he's doing is he is praying. Um, he's praying for every bit of them there. He's, he's praying for their spirit, their soul, and their body. 
um, that, that the steadfastness of Christ, that they, that all of them would be directed to that. And again, he's bringing it full circle and like pointing back to Jesus because it's interesting to me. He starts this letter. He starts second Thessalonians, um, in verse four with saying, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness um, and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Um, and so he starts it even like being thankful for that, but then he's going to come right back around and use that word again and remind them that truly all of this is anchored in Christ. Um, and I love the way that Paul is, is leading them and teaching them, um, and he is telling them that in light of the gospel, you need to live filled with gratitude because of what God has done and is doing and will continue to do. In light of the gospel, you're to live faithfully to the truth. In light of the gospel, we are to live lives that are satisfied. In light of the gospel, we are called to pray that the gospel would advance. Thessalonians, you are called to pray these things. Um, and you're called to trust God fully and to depend on him. Despite the circumstances, despite everything that's going on and the hostility and the hardships, um, we can rest in a full assurance um, of who God is and that he's going to continue to be faithful in this work that he started. He's going to complete it. So that's all I have for you guys. Let's take a quick break. Drew will be up and give us all kinds of fabulous thoughts, I am sure. We're not. Yeah, thanks, Caleb. It's this dude. It's this disrespectful old man over here is not listening to me. All right. Bring it in. We can do it. If you can hear me clap once. Yeah, man, it works with kindergartners and college students. Okay. Um, all right, a couple things. Real quick, I will just say this. Uh, Kelsey mentioned that we, we were having some prayer stuff tomorrow, kind of rounding out this week. I hope that you have participated in that, and if not, that you'll look into that opportunity tomorrow to do that with us. Uh, one of the things that we're doing tomorrow with it, which is kind of cool in light of what Rachel just talked about, is actually praying through the prayers of Paul. All the prayers of Paul are going to be kind of mentioned, so praying through that. So it could be a really cool thing to be able to see that I have I have really found in my own uh, prayer life that it is... It is sometimes hard to, to figure out what to pray about uh, sometimes. And sometimes I feel like I'm just kind of spacing out. And in those times, uh, there are a few things that have been more helpful for, for me than actually looking at the way Scripture teaches me to pray and praying the Scriptures and praying the way Jesus told me to pray and praying the way the apostles prayed. And so I would encourage you, whether you're, doing, whether you're joining in tomorrow or not, um, that, you would, uh, that you would look through the Scriptures and let that challenge your prayer stuff. Um, all right, as, as we jump in, let me kind of give you a, a little preview to coming attractions. Once we get back from spring break, we're going to jump into a series on uh, basically kind of biblical manhood and womanhood. And what does it look like? What does it mean to be a godly man? And what does it mean to be a godly woman? And then we'll get into issues of like how to, um, uh, how to be single and how to be married and how to date and those things. We're also going to talk about stuff like uh, sexuality and pornography and some of that stuff kind of early on, actually, we're going to be talking through those. And, and let me just jump real quick before we, before we even get there to, 
two questions that always come up, and, and you might ask them during that time. I don't know, because we'll have a Q&A session about stuff kind of towards the end. But two questions for as long as I have ever been in church and ever had any class on sex um, in youth group or church camp or whatever, two questions that have always popped up over and over and over again. And you've probably heard them yourself or asked them yourselves. Um, I know I've asked at least one. Um, the first one is this, how far is too far? Everybody knows that question, right? How far is too far? Which is kind of a weird question a little bit if you think about it. Kind of like, what's the most I'm allowed to get away with and God will still like me? Or something like that, right? Is kind of an interesting question. But it always asked, and, and it kind of comes from a decent heart to try and, I want to make sure that I'm not crossing the line. I want to make sure that I'm not sinful. So how far is too far? And here's the second one that I've heard a lot, and this is one I know I have asked. Um, if God didn't want me to do this stuff, then why did he put such strong desires in me? Why do I have such strong desires towards something that God prohibits and does not allow until I'm married, which, you know, I'm asking that question when I'm 13 or 14, and so marriage is a ways away, you know what I mean? And so why would God put these very strong desires in, in me and then not allow me to act on them or expect me to withhold from those things? Um... This is, uh, this is, I think, the way most people view our problem with sin. That, that by and large, when we think of our sin, we think the problem is our, that our desires are too strong. That, that we have too many. So I, I, I have this strong desire for sex, and I need to learn to, to figure out how to quell that desire, how to not desire that so much, and then things will go better. Or, or I desire uh, pleasure to, to enjoy myself too much, and so I go out and I do stupid things. I party and I get drunk and I do these things that later I regret because of that. Or I, I desire money and stuff so badly that I do wicked things, whether that's just a greedy, selfish lifestyle or, or that has to do with like cheating people out of money, whatever it takes to get money. Why? Because the desire in me is just too strong. And, and most of us, I think, honestly believe that that is the problem. What we need to do is to be able to get our desires in check, and then we won't struggle so much with sin. There's a famous, very famous sermon that uh, C.S. Lewis, an author, uh, kind of back from the 1940s, once preached that kind of turns into an essay of his, and it's called The Weight of Glory. And... Uh, and, and, and I'm basically going to be kind of remixing that sermon tonight with you a little bit, this, this sermon that he preached. And in that sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says that actually the exact opposite is true. That the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but that our desires are too weak. We can take just pause here for a moment. Um, So, C.S. Lewis says this. I'm going to let you hear this again because this is actually crucial. <laughs> As everyone's eyes just. Okay. C.S. Lewis says the reason you sin so much is because your desires are too weak and not strong enough. And you would say, well, yeah, yeah, sure, but the problem is that it's all this stuff that I want for me and, and I want my own personal gain. And C.S. Lewis says, nope, that's not the problem either, actually. Jesus and the rest of the scriptures over and over again call you and entice you by at, like promising reward for following well. 
like call you towards a desire for great gain in your life. And, and so he says the problem is not that your desires are too strong, and it's not even that they are actually motivated for like wanting something. It's that they are too weak and aimed towards the wrong stuff. He uses this amazing illustration that has kind of always stuck with me. He says we're, we're honestly, we're like a little five-year-old who's content to play with mud pies in the middle of a slum because we don't know what a vacation at the ocean means. Like someone offers us a vacation to go out to the beach and we go, no, I'm fine here because we've never even heard of what the beach is. We have no idea what it is. He says we are far too easily pleased. We'd rather play with mud pies than go hang out on the beach. Um, and, and, and in his same sermon, Lewis will actually say that all of these little desires that you have, all of these you think too big desires, these desires for sex, these desires for money, these desires to be known and admired and famous, all of these little desires are actually hints at this one great desire inside of you. This one great longing that every one of us has that runs just beneath the surface. And it is hard to get, um, hard to even see it because it only actually shows itself in these little moments, these little glimpses. Like, I don't know if you've ever um, been to Colorado and, and had a chance to go and like climb up a mountain uh, at any point and, and the amazing kind of the challenge of that followed by what happens when you get up to the top and you have the ability to look out over this amazing landscape and see this incredible beauty unfolding before your eyes and there is something that is so like you want that and love that so much and and some of you I'm about to say something that you won't some of you won't know what I'm talking about but some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about where you get up there and it's so beautiful and yet there's like this I always almost, the, the way I think about it is like, I wish I could fly over to what I'm seeing. Like, I want to be closer to it. But that's, that's not exactly it, because I know that actually closer, a lot of times the beauty is the further back landscape. So it's not that I want to get closer to it. It's just that I want to be like in it more. Or, or maybe when you've heard this amazing piece of music, there's this guy that I went to school with at, at Ozark. His name is Tony Anderson. And uh, he was like the biggest goofball in the world when he was uh, on our floor there in Williamson. And now he's like this musical genius that is sought after by BMW and Nike and filmmakers all over for his, for his scores, the music that he writes. And he does this amazing stuff. And, and when I listen to Tony's music, like I, I feel this, this amazing sense of beauty and I love it and I get caught up in it and yet there is almost always like this, this something in me that wants more of it, literally wishes I could like climb into the music. Like I, I don't want to just experience it. I want to I wanna be in the beauty of that. I want to be a part of the beauty of that. I don't know if you've ever felt that, that idea of like I don't want to just see the beauty of the mountain. I want to like be in the middle of it. I want to enjoy it and, and be a part of it. Another way I've kind of thought of it is go back to that same thing. You're, you're up on the mountain and you take the picture with your camera and you're so excited to show like your friends and family when you get home and then you like pull the picture out on your phone or whatever and it's like nothing like what you remember seeing, right? And you're like, no, it was, I mean, it was cooler than this when you, like if you would have been there, right? And there's, there's two things that are going on there. One is a camera, no matter how good it is, cannot fully capture like what you're seeing there in that moment. 
Two, though, I think is honestly, we, um, we plug in extra, like almost extra memory of beauty into what we saw. Um, maybe you've experienced this with like a, a really great childhood memory of a place you used to hang out with, hang out at when you were a kid. And, and you remember this amazing place and you go back to it and it's kind of like sort of cool and sort of cool, but I, it was bigger than this, I thought. I thought it was bigger than this, right? And it was like, I remember it being cooler than this. And my, my daughter is the queen of this. She, she loves, my oldest daughter, Ella, loves everything that we don't have anymore more than what we have now. So whatever, whatever her favorite thing is, it's what we don't, it was what was yesterday, right? And so, and she talks about our house, all, our old house all the time, this, this little house that, that we were in and we moved away from a couple of years ago and she always talks about how she misses the old house and it's a better house and da 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 and, and, uh, and so one day, like this is like six, seven months ago, we, we actually took the kids, we were on that side of town and so we actually decided we're going to drive past it and let her see it and she was like amped and stoked to go see the old house, whatever, we drive past it, and literally we drive past it, and she's like, they shrunk it. Like, how did they, they made it, how did they make it, oh, they didn't shrink it, it was always that size. No, Dad, I remember, right? And here's, here's what's happening. This, what we call nostalgia is this feeling that there was a greater beauty in there that, like, I, I, I know there was something more in there that often wasn't even there. The good old days are rarely as good as, they, as we actually remember them to be. There's this extra, this extra longing in us. Uh, Lewis says in his sermon, what you're bumping up against is a longing that cannot be satisfied here on earth, but that everything here on earth is pointing to. Like every good thing you enjoy is a hint at the truth of it. Is a, is a signpost telling you that there's something further on, but you, nothing here is enough to give us that, um, to get our mind and our eyes around those things. Um, what, uh, what Lewis kind of will, I'll just say this real quick. So what I want to do for you tonight is, is ask and hopefully answer four questions. Four quick questions, uh, not, not super quick, sort of quick. I'm not going to promise anything um, to you. And so here's, here's, number, here's number one. What is that desire that Lewis is talking about? What is that longing you have when you're viewing a landscape and you wish you could not just see it but kind of like be in it? What is that feeling that makes something seem like it was greater and you remember something more beautiful about it and then get back to it and it's not quite there? Lewis says what everything here on earth, what every desire you have is pointing towards is a longing for your real home and that is heaven. Um, that's what he calls it. I would actually say probably more that the new heaven and the new earth because that's what God is aiming us towards. It's not a taking us away from here to some ethereal, spiritual place, but actually restoring and redeeming everything to what it ought to be. Or you could say eternity, that we are designed for eternity, and so non-eternal things can only point but will never fully satisfy. This was what the book of Ecclesiastes we talked about was about um, over and over again, that everything under the sun, that is everything without God, is what's the term? Vanity or vapor or meaningless it is something that you just cannot get your your hands around and it just kind of dissipates in front of you as you try to get a hold of it but in this particular sermon when lewis talks about the weight of glory he says there's this one key aspect 
of heaven, of eternity that all of us are really longing for and no one even knows how to say it and everyone feels bad if they even try to say it. I've never actually found myself thinking too in depth about this and never thinking the way that Lewis thinks about it. But it's in our text here tonight in 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, verse, I'll, I'll read 13 into 14 here. It says this, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that, here it is, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is what uh, this is what Lewis says you are longing for, and as I said, we don't think about this a whole lot. But what the Bible teaches, and this is almost sounds crazy, is that God is one day going to glorify you. And that sounds weird because we know this, that like the point of everything here on this earth is the glory of God and that I am designed and made for. My primary purpose is to glorify God. And that is true. The New Testament, though, also teaches this, that God glorifies us. And again, that almost sounds strange to come off my lips, but over and over again, the Scriptures testify to this truth that God will glorify us. Um, and, and that seems crazy to think through those things. It seems crazy to talk through that, but let me give you a couple of, t- actually, I'm going to give you a lot. So if you like to write notes and, and keep track of everything, I'm going to throw a lot of scripture at you tonight and you're just going to be frustrated. So I made these printouts with all the texts that I'm going to be talking about both sides. All right. And if you really want them, you can go get a hold of them. So don't sweat it here, okay? This is what 1 Thessalonians 3, or 2, so this is 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Romans 8.17 says, We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Romans 8.30, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 2 Peter 1.3-4 is a weird one. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen to this. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Colossians 3.4 When Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. I know you've thought about that. I hope you've thought about this idea that one day Jesus will come back and when he appears there, cracks open the sky, it will be glorious. He will appear in all his glory and the world will bow down. And Paul says, and you also will appear with him in glory. I don't think about that aspect very much, but this is what he said. And there's plenty more where that came from, a number of them on that sheet right there. There's no way to get around this idea you were made to be glorified. 
Does that sound weird? So what does that mean? What does it mean that God is going to glorify us? Well, it can mean a couple of different things. One of the things that theologians talk about a lot when, it, uh, when they talk about us, our future glorification is this idea that we're going to get new bodies, that we're going to get new, redeemed, kind of glorified, more brilliant kind of bodies. This is Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. In Romans 8.23, earlier I read to you 8.17 and 8.30. This comes right in between those two verses. He says that Creation itself groans, but not only creation, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, and here's what he defines that as, the redemption of our bodies. And so we know that Christianity is actually really big on God redeeming and restoring the physical. Christianity is not like so many religions of the first century and even some today that highlight the spiritual as the only thing that matters. That the goal is to kind of get away from our bodies and go up into this spiritual heaven place where we'll, where we'll you know, float on clouds and play little see-through harps and all that kind of stuff while we're up in heaven. No, the idea is God is working to redeem and restore the physical. He made it. He loves it. He's honored by it. And so he's going to give us one day redeemed, restored physical bodies. But there is something more than this when it says that it's going to glorify you. And here's why I believe that. Because the Bible actually says that it's already happening. That he's already starting to glorify you. And I know that that has nothing to do with our bodies because the Bible tells us over and over again that these bodies are breaking down. But it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed presently. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That it's already taking place. So this can't just be something about bodies. You know what that word means, to glorify? Basically what you think it means, to praise, to celebrate, to honor. That's what it says is going to take place, that we will be praised, that we will be celebrated, that we will be honored. And that just sounds weird, honestly. Um, That just sounds, if I'm honest, prideful and self-seeking to say that all the longing in my heart is to be praised. That great desire that runs underneath me that everything is pointing to is to be honored one day, to be famous one day, to be approved of one day. Is that not self-seeking? And the answer is yes, of course it's self-seeking when we seek it in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. But there is nothing vain or self-seeking, think about this, about a child seeking approval from the parent that that child loves. So when, when I say to my kids, I need you to go clean your room, and they, on one of those really rare occasions, don't wait for me to say it 18 times before they go do it. Like they go pick it up right away on that first time. I am always sure to congratulate them when I say, man, Hudson, I am so glad that you did that. Way to go, man. Great job. Like, you can see it in him. Kind of his chest starts to stick out a little bit, right? And kind of that smile kind of comes across his face. There is nothing prideful in that. There is nothing vain in that. There is nothing wrong in this idea like he is delighting in the fact that he pleased someone he loves that he pleased someone who is kind of over him. When a servant gets a well done from the king um, like, and, and gets 
glad for that. There is nothing that is wrong in that. Lewis calls it this, the pure satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared. And then he says this, that that, that picture of my son right there getting really excited is a glimpse into, listen to this, this is kind of a longer quote, it's a glimpse into what may happen when the redeemed should beyond all hope and nearly beyond all belief when they would learn at last that she has pleased him who she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing, with no taint of what we now call self-approval. She will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. What he's saying is, like, there will be this day when you stand before God and receive honor from Him, and I guarantee you there will be no room for you to feel vain or self-assured about that. That in that moment, he says, that every bit of um, low self-esteem and lack of self-worth will disappear, and right next to it will be every bit of pride disappearing with it. That none of those two things will stand in that moment when you hear the person that you were created for, that longing inside of you, that desire to be a part of the beauty. What that is, is the desire to stand before the beautiful and glorious Creator and hear Him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's glory. That's the approval that comes from God. That's, that's the fame and accolade that comes from the one that you were made to seek to please, the one that you were made to love. So third question then, how do we get that? Paul says that we were made to obtain it. How do we do it? Well, we've actually been hinting at it from the beginning. Let me read that verse to you one more time. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if you read the New Testament, what you actually see is when I stand up before God and I get this glory from Him and He honors me, actually what He's going to be honoring is the glory of Christ that I get to share in. It's not actually of me, which is why there won't be any room for my pride in it, which is why there won't be any room for the vanity because I'm sharing in His. Listen to what 1 John 3 says. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is actually the work of Jesus through the Spirit is to make me like himself, to make you like himself. I actually, I told you, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let me read that in context. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's what Paul says. As I know Jesus and as I gaze on Him in the same way that Moses went up on the mountain and he looked at God on Mount Sinai and he came down like covered with the glory of God. It just radiated off of Him. He says in the same way as we gaze upon God, as we know Him, that actually we're being transformed into His image. And that is our glory, that we're becoming more and more like Him. So we know Him, we seek Him, and He does the work to put His image of His Son in us. Do you know what Jesus is described as in Hebrews 1? He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His being. So this is, this is the crazy thing that happens. Jared becomes more and more like the exact imprint of God's being. 
becomes more and more like the radiance of God's glory. Like Alexis, as she is knowing Christ, is being moved from one degree of another into the radiance of God's glory in the exact imprint of his being. Not because of anything from up within her, but because she's being joined into the very imprint of uh, God in Jesus Christ. That that is shining out through her Um, one day, so this is happening in imperfection, but there will be one day when actually it happens completely. And we stand before Him and we see Him and we are made um, to bask in that glory. Last question, number four. Why does this matter? So like, cool thought to think that one day, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, whatever, this is going to happen. Sweet, that's awesome. What does that have to do with today? Um, Three things. When you understand this, number one, it ought to increase your love and your kindness for the person sitting next to you. For the person that you're sitting next to, this is another thing C.S. Lewis says, that you have never actually, um, you have never in your life interacted with a mere mortal. Nations, civilizations, cultures, the arts, kingdoms, these things are all temporary. But every person you talk to every day, he says it is immortals that you joke with every day. It is immortals that you go on dates with. It is immortals that you sit next to and you will marry. It is immortals that you snub and um, mock behind their back. Um, People who one day when you One day, if you were to see them as they will be on the final day standing before God, if you were to see them in that kind of glory right now, you would be tempted, he said, to fall on your knees and worship them. They're going to be that beautiful and glorious. Those are the people that you sit next to. Um, Actually, he says, either they will be so glorious you will be tempted to worship them, or they will be the the most hideous monsters of your nightmares. That is the direction (laughs) that every one of us is going one of those two ways. Um, He says... It might be possible for you to think too much about what it's going to be like for you when you get kind of transformed into this glory of Christ. He said it is impossible for you to spend too much time thinking about your neighbor like that um, because, because that changes the way you see them. Number two, um, it's important for us to know this because, as I said, actually, you can experience this to some degree now. The more we know Jesus and the more we submit to the Spirit, the more you get to experience in imperfect ways hearing this faint whisper in your ear from God, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what you were made for. And you can actually start to feel hints of that. You can actually start to know a little bit of the joy of what it means to please the very one that you were made to please now as you seek to know Him in Christ. And the third one is this, um, that actually that happening in you, as you are transformed more and more into the image of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, is one of the greatest proofs that this is real. Is one of the greatest proofs that Christianity actually matters. So, I've referenced 2 Corinthians 3 multiple times. Let me finish with this. 2 Corinthians 3 is written in the context of a lot of people saying to Paul that his ministry isn't legit. And the reason we can tell it's legit is for two reasons, Paul. One is, you claim to be this amazing, powerful apostle with this incredible message, but all I ever see you is getting the crap kicked out of you everywhere you go. That you always get beat up, that you always get thrown in jail, you do not seem like a guy who is on the side of God very much. 
And so literally there were these other people coming into the Corinthian church trying to pretend they were kind of like super apostles and better and they'd come with these kind of special letters of credential to show themselves. And here's what Paul says. You want to know what my letters of credential are? You want to know how you know if I'm real or not, if my ministry is right or not? He says, my letters of credential, Corinthians, are you guys. He says, 2 Corinthians 3.2, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And, and, and so he says, like, this is how you can know that what I'm saying is true. Look at the way the Holy Spirit has shaped you. Look at the way that things are doing to you. So what you are, actually, there will be a, there will be a day when God redeems and restores everything in this universe and makes everything beautiful and glorious. Until that day, you in essence, by the way you live your life, are a message from the future. You in essence are, are a pointer to that day when everything is going to be made right. And the hope and the way it ought to be is that people look at you and they see eternity. That they look at you and they see that everything, everything that God is aiming all of His creation for, the redemption of His children, the redemption of their bodies, holiness and the image of Christ being formed in you. One day it will be complete. Until that day, we gaze on Him, we seek Him, and are being slowly but surely in ways you may not even see, transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let me pray um, for us to, to see that and seek that more, and then we'll be done. Dear Father, I talk about these things, and even as I talk about these things, like I believe these things, but I may not, I don't fully have a grasp on it in some ways, and I definitely, it's hard for it to feel real to me, and, and I know it will never fully real until that day that we do stand before you and um, and get to hear well done and that's what I want so much and, and I know that we were made for that so Lord I pray that you would cause us to be the kind of people who who think about pleasing you who think about letting Jesus be formed in us um, I pray that you would uh, form us into the kind of people that broadcast the truth of Christianity to the world around us, that people would look at us and go, that is, that is not what a normal person acts like. That is not the way I live my life. Something must be different. And so, Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to begin that process in us even now and continue that on all the way until um, the day that it is um, complete when we stand before you. Um, please help us in this. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, um, I think no announcements, right? Nothing? Okay. We've got food. Here's a sheet full of verses if you want. So.